Welcome to the second part of our second episode. Today we're sitting here with Zhao Yu, executive chef of Holy Folk here in Hong Kong. Yeah, I mean, around like Zuma's been around for ages, right?、Mm. So、um, there, but it seems, I guess, with the pandemic as well, that people are trying to find other sources of revenue, and that maybe a, a brunch is a good way to go. Yes, but also at the same time, you know, I think、uh, is the buffet style the best idea at this particular moment? We, you know, with an open counter food that people taking something with that much contact is that the best idea? I'm not so sure. You know, maybe there's there's a considerable risk at this particular juncture、mm. right now. So we've seen some hotels shift to a la carte style、uh, breakfast service、uh, and brunch service. One is just maybe they think it's probably better, more suitable for hygienic practices at this particular moment,、uh, and also maybe to control costs a little bit better. Okay, you've also done quite a few pop-ups over the years, right? So、uh, collaborating with different chefs or going in with. One one days or I think up to a week you've done. Yes, yeah,、um, a few services. Yes,、yeah. I've done. So,、yeah. is that something you do as a, to keep it interesting, or I mean, to to learn something, or where does that、uh, people ask you to do it just for the fun of it, or?、Uh, yeah, it depends. You know, sometimes I do it、um, because maybe an interesting place to go to,、uh, and it's a good marketing. What's some good pop-ups you've you've worked on over the years?、Um, the game dinner was very interesting around this time last year.、Uh, it was at Lyles, but we went. We spent a few days hunting in Scotland. Wow! And、um, whatever game that we hunted, we took it back to the restaurant、uh, after the game was over, and we cooked from the game. That's pretty cool. I mean, you don't yeah, do that every day. You know, I think it's it's、uh, as a chef is a、uh, it was a very interesting to see the life cycle of something, you know, farm to table or forest to table, right? Right. Well, it's shot. It's wild. Yeah. You know, and there are days where we didn't shoot anything. We didn't shoot any deer because、uh, it was just not available to us. There was so many. They were they're incredibly hard to shoot, and.、Um, You will have to stalk a deer from more than a kilometer away, and then they can pick up a scent, movement, or sound、Gone. when you approach、ah. right away. So turn around and look, and they'll scurry off. So they're incredibly hard to shoot. But this is just a highlight of,、um, for a lot of for me actually, to learn that how hard food is to come by if you're a hunter and gatherer, which is how the humans. Evolved you know. many years, yeah. So yeah. you think farming is a better thing? Because in Taiwan, when you grew up, you were you you learned about farming. So you think it's better to hunt or to farm? What's the? Well, it's definitely easier, right? To 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 graze land,、uh, to 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 clear a particular plots of land. Well, as your preference, which grow, one? Which is? You think hunting is more the exciting, it, or is it just a pain in the butt? It's definitely more difficult, right? Because、right? you don't know what you're going to get.、Right. If you're hungry. And you have to hunt. You don't know that you're gonna yield something from this hunt. So there, if you don't get anything, you probably just have to go hungry, 
or you have to go gather some shrubs, berries and shrubs, yeah, to to feed, right? So, when humans began to clear land historically and started vegetation, then they can have a rhythm of understanding how nature works, how things grow, and then have a projection of how much food they're going to be able to produce. And that is much lost on. People nowadays, no. I mean, where does food come from? You say from the supermarket or the wet market, right? There's not much understanding left of what it takes to, in that process you just explained, between hunting or even farming, right? This is sort of uh, it's removed from from everyday life. You know? Well, when we talk about like a particular crop, like apples, apples we see year round in the supermarket. Yeah, a seasonal crop, right? So, but actually. The, the the harvest is maybe from autumn, about a four-month period. But the rest of the time, they keep it in a, a, a temperature-controlled storage so that supermarket can keep these apples on the shelves year-round. But in actuality, in, in, in nature, this is a, a very seasonal crop like everything else. Uh, but we just take it for granted to have apples all year-round. What do you make of um, so so? There was a comment I read some times ago um, that the amount, the diversity in our diet, everyday diet, has decreased dramatically from, let's say, I don't know, fifty or a hundred years ago. Even on the meat side, poultry, people just eat chicken breast; they don't eat the rest so much. Obviously, you work in your restaurants, have some of those ingredients in there, but uh, in general, when you go in a If you look at what is in a daily diet of a lot of people, uh, there's not a lot of diversity, right? You have a lot of corn, uh, a lot of uh, maybe chicken, whatever it is. It's fairly, it's fairly narrow the way it's portrayed. What do you make of that? I mean, I think it's very cultural as well, depending on one part of culture to another across the world. Uh, but for Chinese people, they're all about nose to tail eating, mm. and for a lot of Asian cultures, uh, and that's important. You know, chicken is not just boneless skinless chicken breast but there's just chicken neck chicken feet uh, wing tip chicken tail all edible you know when you look at a beast like a like a cow you know we can eat the head all the way down to oxtail it's they're all edible pieces even from uh, all the stomachs that they have so this is important you, you know in, in a lot of Asian society is to How do you maximize something with zero waste? They're all edible parts, uh, but people people's diet becomes so rigid that um, a lot of cultures don't explore outside of the possibilities. You know, like, oh, like a piece of pork liver or beef liver. That's not a very common cut to have, even in the markets or in restaurants. Yeah. You know, so. And I, and I and it's kind of sad because these are all perfectly uh, fine things to eat. Absolutely. Early on, we talked about, uh, or at the very beginning, you mentioned about delivery and how things are changing. Uh, there's now ghost kitchens. Um, and probably delivery is here to stay, right? I mean, it was, it was a trend that was already there pre-pandemic, but it's definitely accelerated a lot as we went into this lockdown. People stay at home, work from home. And uh, I'll just pick up the app or the phone or whatever, and um, 
and get their delivery to the door. So what's your take on that? I mean, we talked earlier about the experience you look to create. When it comes out of a box in a paper or plastic bag, what's left of the experience that you'd look to create or you put so much effort in? Look, you know, I think it's uh, going to be a permanent part of the business now going forward um, because of the habits that were formed. It's important to understand the habits that were formed during the lockdown. And this is now a permanent part of people's eating habit. So they've learned to, okay, I can sit in the comfort of my own home or office or whatnot, open my phone, scroll through the menu of dishes that I want to have a couple clicks away that I know it will be here maybe within uh, 45 minutes to an hour. That's it. Mm. The motion of calling the restaurant, getting a table, getting ready, uh, deciding how to get there from A to B, and then getting there, if there's no booking, do you have to wait? Right, so all these things—it's it's a totally different experience. Um, but you know, the magic that happens uh, stays within the restaurant, right? Because we've thought about this: how to curate this experience. So, of course, when you get the food in a paper box getting delivered to your house, you're not going to get the same experience. Um, you know, this is just, this is now a part of... Like an extension of your business, right? Yeah, now it's an, an extension of the business now. So then how do we uh, make this part of the business different? So now what we have is uh, making uh, little cards for people that they can scan and go to the playlist so they can listen to the playlist. That's pretty cool. At home. Yeah. <laughs> if we can't, if they if they can't be physically here, how do we bring this to them in a different way? Um, also, adding beverages, um, the wine program, some cocktails that we can bottle uh, that they can make at home. If if we can, if they can come here physically, how do we bring this a part of the experience to them? So this is this is now a, a permanent part of the business. Now it's what. It's what this business had to pivot to just make do. And between the restaurants you look after now, did some pick up more on the delivery side than others? Um. Oh, yes, definitely. Um, especially uh, the Petit Saigon, which is a bummy shop. Um, I mean, this, this, this item is made for takeaway or delivery. It's a one meal that's packaged in a walking form like to go sort of thing that's yeah. right so this this particular aspect of the business and this dish was very suitable uh, for delivery right you have one sandwich and that's a meal huh. and so now you create new concepts in the future then you plan the delivery component more into it from the get-go it's definitely a consideration huh. um, is you know, how we're going to package this delivery right what kind of material would the packaging come and uh, how does it sit in this packaging mm-hmm. you know for we've just for example getting the dumplings for takeaway we had bagasse and we had uh, which is made from recyclable material 
we had paper boxes uh, with a sort of like a shiny coating. Yep. The bagasse didn't work because as the dumplings traveled, uh, the dumpling skin got stuck to the box. Onto the box, okay. Right, but we didn't know this, uh, you know, until uh, customers were, were saying, oh, so this is why it happened. It's like, oh, okay. We haven't right. even, How many have I right. sent out, right? That's right, we haven't even thought about this, right? So how much moisture is in the dish and what sort of container that should be in? Mm. So this is uh, now uh, a different side of the business that I hadn't thought about. You know, before I think, okay, what kind of plate am I going to go on? Is it going to be a bowl? Is it going to be a plate? Is it going to be a, a cook bowl? Uh, but now it's thinking, what type of container material container material that it's going to be in? It's going to be high. It's going to be low. It's going to be completely enclosed, or and you just stock that and source it, right? So it's additional additional work. What do you make of ghost kitchens at a very far extreme, right? These are Restaurants that don't really physically exist other than by a often shared kitchen space with some other concepts and chefs just bang out food and off it goes on delivery. I mean, there's no physical space experience that we just talked about to the, to the consumer at all. What what do you make of that? Well, they're a, more of a product out of necessity. necessity. You know, um, where delivery radius was limited by a particular physical space of a restaurant. Now you can have multiple concepts in these ghost kitchens serving the same food in different parts of the city. So um, as a demand for delivery um, start to increase, then people from different areas outside of the deliver, uh, delivery radius have a more demand for something like that. Hmm. So this is, you know, what came first, kid, kid, the, the chicken or the egg? So, um, yeah, they're, they're, able, they're able to, one particular concept are able to s serve a larger customer base uh, based on the location of these delivery radius. And would you do something like that? I mean, uh, because it's a very commercial driven approach. So maybe not all, every concept works to have some, you know, and it works in a in a ghost kitchen format where you get this geographic presence uh, expanded. So, is that something you could see yourself incorporating in the future? Or you say like, nah, you know, I'm more happy with with a physical presence of a proper restaurant. You know, the delivery game is a totally different ball game. Hmm. Um, I mean, at, at 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 this particular point, I was just so happy that the restaurants open. Yeah that I can put food on a plate because that's what I feel that it should be on uh, as a chef. You know, that makes me proud. Um, the plate, an empty plate is like a canvas, right? And the, the food that I put on it um, uh, speaks for itself and it speaks the language that I want to convey to the consumers. It sitting in a paper box is not, you know, what I was trained to do or what we, I would prefer to do, but, uh, but it's now a part of the business. So, uh, but at the end of the day, I still like something beyond a plate because that's how it should be. Something uh, that's cooked to order, something that is hot, and something that is eaten within minutes. 
from it can, comes out to the table. That's how I feel. And you have open kitchen both in Fukuro and here, so I guess that speaks to it as well. So you see the you know the consumer sees or the guest sees what how the food is made and where it's made, and there's a connection to the kitchen, right? So look, you know this this is um, this is part of the language, hmm. right? Or what you see. This is also part of the experience when they walk in the customer. Yeah, you hear the walk going, and it's like right. It's a it's it's, it's an experience. You right? walk into the kitchen first before going to the dining room. You know, and that is not, it's kind of unusual uh, for a lot of Chinese restaurant experience. Absolutely. The kitchens in the back. But Traditional Western would also not have the kitchen in the front, right? It's that's like, right. It's, it's, it's a bit unusual. Yeah. But yeah. this is, um, um, you know, something that will. Although the wonton shops and the char siu places, is, you know, it's right in the front when you walk in. So it's a little bit. In Hong Kong, you can find a little bit. But as you say, the traditional one, the sort of fine dining run, kitchens in the back, right? You never see the chef, basically. That's uh, right. Uh, uh, um, let's talk about uh, Canton Disco. You opened in the, in a hotel, right? This is a addition hotel in Shanghai? Addition hotel, yes. How is it? Is any difference between having a restaurant that's located in a hotel versus uh, freestanding? Or you approach it the same? And uh, It was a, definitely a big learning process um, you know in terms of ordering something um, the hotel I, I, if, I, if it was a freestanding restaurant I just ring the supplier and they bring the next day it's very direct uh, working in a hotel you want to buy something you need to get um, approval from the purchasing department to find three suppliers Oh, wow. And they always usually will go for the cheapest supplier first uh, to compare prices. Very bureaucratic in the way. Right. They'll order it and then finding out, hey, hang on a minute, this is not the right product. Then you send it back and then get this, go for the second coded supplier. So by the time you get the products that you want, it may be a, a week already. So the momentum is very, very slow to pick up. And that's this is just like a like a small example, mm. you know. But there's many things that have to go through the different departments, getting um, six signatures before the sign off is approved. Uh, yeah. uh, one topic we didn't talk about is um, uh, women in the kitchen. So in the profession as a chef. Mm -hmm. Uh, there have been some very successful ones over the years, but it seems in Hong Kong, at least in traditional restaurants, you don't see too many. Um, how does it work for you in your kitchens and where you've worked over the years? Uh, Look, I believe uh, a woman can do anything that a man can in the kitchen. There's, you know, if you have the determination, the drive, um, yeah, they can do anything. You know, I've I, I've got no... Uh, you know, if someone if if, if someone comes to me, he's like, okay, I want to do that. Uh, like, yeah, sure, you can have a go. Of course, yeah, yeah that's no problem. I Just be ready. It's gonna be demanding and challenging and tiring, and but well, doesn't mean that you can't do it. Right? Yeah. This profession is already physically demanding and challenging for, for anyone, <laughs> whether if you're a man or whether if you're a woman. Uh, so that's that's already established, right? Yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't think uh, I, anyone. Yeah, there's not a limit to 
for me or to anyone can say what they can or cannot do in mm-hmm. the kitchen. Yeah. yeah, that makes sense. Okay, towards our closing, um, if you were to give some advice, somebody who was looking to open a restaurant or a concept, obviously we're in pandemic, t- pandemic time, so, but in normal times, is there anything you would tell someone uh, looking to open a restaurant? And there's a lot of restaurants that open and uh, quite a few that close as well, right? The, life, the shelf life of a restaurant is often short. Any, any advice you would give to somebody who has the, uh, is listening in, is like, oh, I want to open my restaurant, uh, has a dream, and uh, what, what will you tell them? Don't do it or, you know. Go work in a restaurant. First. First. Okay, see how well, it works. Do whatever, do, spend some time working whatever position that's available to you um, and uh, in whatever capacity. Take a lot of notes and be there from the beginning until the end and see how hard it is mm. and then ask yourself the question whether if this is the life that you want is this is this for you before just sinking your money into 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 this business um, so that's, that I think it's I think most people don't realize how much work goes in uh, behind uh, every restaurant that gets open there's maybe 10% that you can see as a consumer but there's that is just a tip of the iceberg there's 90% that you don't see the amount of work, the amount of momentum that it takes to get this yeah. open. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And any anything about landlords that want to have a great concept? So I guess you get approached a lot by people that say, like, I have a shopping mall or I have a space and we want your restaurant. Or does that happen to you? I mean, uh, any- uh, yeah. I mean, I'll, you think there's always a, an incentive to, to, to fill a space. Uh, and also for landlords to to find the right tenant mix. Um, yeah, this this happens a lot. Uh, but at the end of the day, it's just whatever concept need to be location specific. You can have the best concept in the world, but in the wrong location, in problem may or may not work. Hmm. Um, you can have the best location, the wrong concept, or the wrong con- concept. You know, the, there's some things that work better so then how to step outside of it and think okay what kind of concept would be suitable for this location Hmm. okay um so how do you stay ahead i mean uh somebody you know there's a very competitive business um is it that you mentioned the training earlier that's so important you stay after consistency or how do you maintain to stay competitive in this business which is so so brutal in a way I think one is providing a consistent experience that people are going to expect when they come here. That's the minimum requirement. Um, I think two is just never stop learning. You know, I'm I'm still learning how to cook something better constantly. You know, is there a better way to do something? Is there a better way to cook something? Is there a better ingredient uh, for the same dish? You know, um, and you, how to drive yourself to like how to seek out something better for the business. Or keep innovating. Yeah, that's right. Trying new things. Trying yeah. new things. Okay. You know? um, and yeah, how to keep you the fire, the passion that you have for the business burning. That's a really crucial part. You know, there's a lot of people that get into this this industry 
they put everything they have, and then the passion runs out. Then like, okay, this is not for me, and then goes down. Yeah. I'm out. Hmm. You know, keeping that 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 passion, keeping that the initial impetus of why you decided to do this in the first place. Keep it curious. Keep it, uh, you know, exciting for yourself. It's very important. Hmm. Okay. And then the last question, um, as we're up on time, or over time already, you got to get back to upstairs, I guess. Um, what, what do you think is going to be the biggest change for the next 10 years for your industry? I mean... I think definitely technology hmm. uh, and how that's applied to the business. You know, uh, for example, um, we're talking about technologies in cooking, 3D printing, um, using robots to cook, using AI algorithm to 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 sort of understand uh, human behavior and customer experience, um, using big data to drive this uh, AI learning. They're all becoming a such a, an integral part of, of, of the business now, I think. And there's definitely a lot more room for growth in that aspect. It will no longer be just um, a business model of one person walking to a space, they order from someone, they sit down, one person cooks for them, brings it to a table. It won't be just as simple as that anymore. Huh. You know, we're going to have uh, waiter robots going to have contactless payment and contactless ordering. Okay. Um, so that's becoming a part of the business now that we can see. Cooking robots that shave hand-shaved noodles into the wok. Hmm. Uh, Stir-fry robot. Noodle robot. Wow. So these are uh, uh, all part of the business that's going to be coming more mechanized. In the are years you excited about that? Or are you sort of... Uh saying, well, we've got to do with whatever's out there, or you sort of, because uh, it's it'll, it will remove the personal touch to some extent, right? Uh, I think, okay, there's one thing that you can teach is intuition. And if it is, it's going to be really expensive. So it's hard, how do you teach intuition to, uh, to even a person, let alone a robot? That's going to be the, the biggest challenge. How much or how little to season um, and how to taste something. What are you tasting when you when you put a bite in your mouth? What are the notes you're getting? What sort of aromas, textures? It's hard to teach a robot. It's hard enough to teach a, a person sure, yeah. this. How to teach a robot this. Mm. So that's, that's something that um, is really personal. And it's something that is uh, one of the last sort of human connections uh, from from the cook to the diner. Absolutely. All right, guys. Uh, this was Chow Yu, executive chef of Holy Folk. A man's got to be back in the kitchen. So, million thanks to you. Thank you it's very good, much. It was a good time. Great conversation. Uh, I hope all the listeners had fun, learned something, and uh, you'll be back for the next episode. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. All right. Cheers stuff all right thank you guys for listening if you have any questions or comments 
please don't hesitate to get on our website drop us an email find us on social media instagram anywhere you can find we'd love to hear from you so go to our website made-in.asia or find us on instagram or our youtube channel thanks for following <laughs>